Let's pray as we go to the Word this morning. Father, we ask that you would be with us this morning, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would soften our hearts to receive your Word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I was thinking back this week uh, to the early church, and there were a lot of questionable choices the early church made. Uh, one of them was to celebrate a meal that was easily misunderstood as a cannibalism, as a you know occasion for cannibalism. Uh, one of them was that they would uh, they would deny the worship that was seen as upholding society, the worship of the city gods. There were all sorts of choices they made that, were, that made them odd, but some of those choices were odd at the moment but turned out to be for the blessing of others and for the growth and strength of the church. Uh, there's, a, there's a book called, not too big a book, called The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark, and he, he lays out in that book not only the question of why, did, why was Christianity received because of the contents of his message, but what gave it social credibility. And there were a number of reasons that he outlines. One of those is, uh, one of those is that they respected and cared for women. Uh, one of them was that they brought in orphans, who often enough were female children, outcast by their families. Uh, but one of those that I went, and this is why I thought about it a lot this week, was that they cared for those in the cities when a plague went through. Now, that was before modern medicine, so undoubtedly that came with a great deal of risk to the lives of those who are engaged in that, and there are differences in the modern world. Uh, But in a time in which we're urged to stick to ourselves, and we should be wise about that, please don't (laughs) misunderstand me, We we need to be wise about how we're gathered and number of people we're gathered around with. But we should still care for one another. That is one of the strengths of the church, is to look out for the welfare of others, not merely ourselves. In that, I, I think the idea of questionable choices is a, a through line through all these stories that we just read together. There are a series of questionable choices that we see Jesus make. Questionable choices that will set the pattern for the church in years to come. The first is the questionable company that Jesus keeps. The second is the questionable use of time. And the third is the questionable celebrations. So think about the questionable company with me. Uh, It opens with a story about Levi. This is also the guy known as Matthew, if you... If you look at Matthew 9, you, you realize this, the story. This was not uncommon in the ancient world that people had multiple names. Uh, you still know people that are known as Bubba. That's not their Christian name. That's not the name they were getting. Well, maybe somebody. But most people, it's, it's not, right? They, but those kinds of names stick around. Uh, the, this wasn't unusual in the ancient world, especially because the ancient world often was crossing languages between Hebrew and Greek and and other places. So you would have a name that would make sense in another language, perhaps, uh, but not, uh, yeah, but one in your native tongue. Anyway, uh, this is Matthew, and he's a tax collector. 
And nobody has ever in all of history liked tax collectors. If the IRS calls you up, you don't want that call. First off, it's probably a scam. <laughs> Second, if it actually is the IRS, you don't actually want to deal with them. Nobody likes dealing with them. But this is a little different. This is more serious than all of that. This is somebody who has taken up with an occupying government. See, the tax collector was somebody who had agreed to work for Rome, had agreed to work for the Roman authorities. So it was not just that people didn't want to pay X number of dollars. They didn't have dollars. It's not that they were so concerned about the rate It was that what he represented was this occupying government, and he was also getting rich off of consorting with them. So it wasn't, see, when you read tax collectors, it's not just that they were greedy. It's not just that they were, that they had to do a job that was unpleasant. He was a traitor. Levi was a traitor. That is how everybody else understood him. No tax collector was ever asked to be part of a rabbi's school. I mean, no wonder he gets up and leaves it all, because this was a profound act of grace on Jesus' part. Everyone else wrote him off, but Jesus calls him. And, and then he throws a, a dinner. It, it's, it isn't specified here, but if you read in Luke, you, you realize it's actually Levi who throws this meal with these tax collectors and sinners. This is a big deal. I mean, who you eat with, who you spend your time with, who you're seen in public with is a big deal. We all, we all know that, right? We want to be seen with the right people. Jesus sits with tax collectors and sinners. Now, that, that, that term sinner, it's a pretty big term, right? Uh, we do see it often specifically associated with those who had violated God's law in terms of sexual norms. But it's broader than that. It, it, does, it, it is a broad category for those who had committed maybe notable, public, obvious sins, the kind of thing everybody knew about. And you see, what, what the Pharisees, it's not that they didn't know that they were sinners. It's not that they thought they hadn't done anything wrong. But by designating some as sinners... And others has not. They have said, well, but mine are easily forgivable. Mine are easily overlooked. But what they've done, what they've done, that's, you know, that's too much. Can't handle that. We don't want to be around those people. I'm afraid of what they would do to us. You see, the scandal of the gospel as one, put her, one writer put it, he says, the Pharisees knew the kingdom was going to be a party. They objected to Jesus' guest list. And so the line lands so hard, doesn't it? That it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but the sick. Jesus didn't come to call those who are righteous, but those who are sinners. And the reality is, is what Jesus is saying, of course, I mean, at one level, everyone is a sinner. But he's saying, look, if you want to receive what I've got to offer, you've got to realize 
that you're a sinner. If you're self-righteous, you will never understand what Jesus has to offer. Never. You'll never get it. I mean, it's a little wonder then that we, uh, that we should talk and we need to think often about what it means to be self-righteous. Or to put it a little differently, we need to think about what it means to be a legalist or a moralist. I'll give you a few, a few tips here. There's a, there's, there's a hardline version which says, I'm completely right all the time. Everything that I do, of course, is right. Now, most people would not say that. They might think it. They might practice it. As I say, if you ask them if they were right all the time, they wouldn't say they're right all the time. No, I'm not. But they don't actually practically ever admit to being wrong about anything. Uh, But most of us, again, are like these Pharisees. We know that we're not perfect. It's just the things we do are not a big deal. So here's some signs of of a legalist of someone who's self-righteous. Symptom number one is obsession with action over attitude. Your actions matter, but that's all. And of course, the truth is our actions do matter. That's not wrong to recognize that our actions matter. Don't tell me that you care and love about me, but you never actually do anything that expresses that. But, those of you who are married, have you ever gotten that conversation with your spouse where they say, they express that they're frustrated, that they don't express, that you're not expressing that you care, and then you go down the list of all the things you've done. And maybe this is some folks more than others. But then you realize, eventually, it's not about what you've done. It's about your attitude along the way. <laughs> so symptom number one is you care more about the actions than the attitude. And this, again, you see this with the Pharisees, right? Their attitude towards those who are not like them. They don't care about that. Symptom number two is you truncate the list of what's a sin. I mean, maybe not technically, but practically, that there are some sins that are the ones that really matter and there are others that don't. Don't get me wrong. The Bible is clear, right, that there are some sins that have a much more damaging effect on you and on others. The Bible's realistic about this. In fact, if you want to think about that, the Westminster Larger Catechism has an Awesome question that goes into all this detail. It's a really long answer uh, to this question. This is 151 in the larger catechism. Uh, that lays out what you can, how you can kind of think through what makes some sins more heinous than others. And actually, it's pretty helpful to, to realize. And the point isn't that, of course, there are different effects to different sins. It's not to deny the reality of that. But it is to say, but are you still going to take sin seriously? And the, West, the people who wrote Westminster are a good case in point because they laid out all that detail. You know what they never talked about? Hmm. Slavery. Though it was going on in England at the time, though England was fueling the, the slave trade into the Americas, 
Never talked about it. See, we all have a tendency to do this, right? To see those sins that others are doing as much more serious. And mine, they're not that serious. They're not a big deal. So there's those sins that we take seriously, those that we don't. And then thirdly, a, a focus on the negative. And this goes with, especially goes with the first symptom of, faith, of focusing on action and not attitude, is you focus on what it is you're not supposed to do. And there are many Christians who have fallen prey to this. Okay, here's all the things I know I'm not supposed to do. And obsessing on that list, and yes, you are not supposed to do those things, probably, but missing that you're also supposed to put on love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All those things, the positive aspects of what we're called to put on. Because if you want to put on the positive aspects, what's curious about all those is you actually have to start dealing with your heart. See, putting off things, creating a list of the negative, a negative list, all the do-nots that you should not do, that tends to keep our, act, our eyes on the actions, and it tends to keep it off of my heart. But the minute I have to start thinking constructively about what I'm called to do, I have to deal with my own attitude towards others. But the good news is that Jesus has come to call sinners. I mean, this is what blew up the Reformation was this doctrine that God came to call sinners, not the righteous. He came to call you and me to to break down our own self-righteous understanding of ourselves and to bring us in. And if you actually want to start dealing with sin, you see, because the Bible does, Jesus doesn't leave people where they're at. He doesn't say, look, I'm welcoming all in, and you know, what you're doing, it's fine, keep going. No, he tells Levi, leave it. Leave it behind, follow me. He tells sinners this over and over again. Your sins are forgiven. Go do otherwise. Walk away from that sin, right? He, he does call others to it, but the first step is knowing that you are received because God loves you and has done something about your sin that you could never do. Because God receives sinners. God not only receives you, He not only takes you in, He justifies you. He counts you as one of His own. And if you want to begin to change, you got to start there. You see, the sure, sure sign of a Christian legalist is that they can tell you all about the doctrine of justification. But then when they start talking about sanctification, when they start talking about what it means to start to change as a Christian, they start talking like you're supposed to be somebody who no longer needs Jesus. But any version of sanctification that starts to leave Jesus behind is to walk back into sickness. Is to to walk right back into self-righteousness. The Christian never loses sight of Jesus. That even as we're struggling to overcome our sin, it is Jesus who heals us. It is Jesus' work 
that changes who we are. It is Jesus' work that changes our outlook on ourselves. And it is Jesus' work that empowers us to change. And when we're empowered to change, it always affects who we are with. It is Jesus' perspective on the world that helps him see everyone else in the world differently. It's his perspective on the world that teaches him to love sinners. It is Jesus' perspective on the world that teaches us to love sinners and to love those who are in need, who is cool, who is interesting, who is a good person. And teaches us to see everybody as an opportunity to love God. So there's this questionable company that Jesus keeps. I'm going to skip over verses 18 to 22 for a minute and get to these two stories about the Sabbath. Notice this, the chapter 2 closes and chapter 3 opens with two stories about the Sabbath. And there's no better case, test case of legalism than Sabbath keeping. No better test case. So the first situation that arises in, at the end of chapter 22, or chapter 2, verse 23, is that Jesus is walking through a field and his disciples start picking some grains of wheat to eat. Well, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And, you know, gathering wheat is, is a form of work. Jesus' response, though, is fascinating. Because what Jesus doesn't do is say, no, 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 that's not work. Instead, he tells them a story from 1 Samuel 21. Maybe that's not right on the front of your mind, but King David was on the run from, well, he wasn't king yet. He was on the run from King Saul who wanted to kill him. David had been anointed by God. David was an anointed one, a Messiah, a Christ, prophet, priest, and king. And David has nothing, and so he goes to the tabernacle. He goes in and eats the bread that's holy to God, that's set aside for God. And, uh, and give some to his men, and then they go on their way. That doesn't, to our knowledge, that doesn't happen on the Sabbath. So it's not about what could or couldn't happen on the Sabbath. It's, it's not about work. It's not about any of those things. It's about the authority David had over the ceremonial law. And Jesus ends it by saying, look, so look, Sabbath, you're not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is made for you, for your benefit. And I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. To call himself the Lord of the Sabbath is to say, I'm the one who created the world in six days and then rested on the Sabbath. I'm the one who delivered you out of Egypt, and so I gave you the Sabbath. If you look at the Sabbath law, if you look at the Ten Commandments, in Exodus 20, the justification for it is God's creation. If you look at 
Deuteronomy 5, the justification for it is that he pulled them out of slavery and has given them rest. Jesus is claiming all of that for himself. Then it goes on uh, so, that he, so that he enters the synagogue and sees a man with a, some sort of deformed hand. I mean, a, a withered hand. I don't know what that means exactly, but it's obviously deformed in some way. And then Jesus turns to the crowd. Is it okay that I heal this guy? What do you think? And they're silent. And the silence is deafening. Okay? Yeah, this, is a, this is a test case of legalism, right? Because they knew what you were not supposed to do. But they couldn't tell you what you were supposed to do. What it was actually for. For wholeness. For life. For love of God. And so Jesus heals this guy. Right in their face. And they are angry. So they're angry about these couple of things that they perceive as violations of the law. And then what do they do? The last verse, they start planning how to destroy him. So on the Sabbath, they're claiming Jesus has been broken. And then they go, because they're so angry about that, and start planning how to kill him. I mean, they're hypocrisy, right? But isn't that what legalism always ends up being? We always get shown up as hypocrites. And look, the Sabbath rest is really important, and there's, there's time where we need to reflect more deeply about that. One of my favorite uh, books about it is, is called The Rest of God by Mark Buchanan, and what, what he says is the Sabbath is both a day and an attitude. The day, the time, structures it provides structure for us, but the attitude is what we're called to live into. The actual amount of time is a sort of uh, means to give us the space to actually reflect on God. And this stands in stark contrast to American life, doesn't it? I mean, the busyness. Like Half the reason we have a little bit of panic, each of us, we all do, right now, is because we realize we won't get much done. If we start rearranging our lives, stuff's not going to get done. I sp- you know, I spent 10 years with Harvard students, and the thing about Harvard students was not so much that they were super smart, though they were is that they were driven. The biggest hurdle of ministry was the busyness of life. They were doing, you know, not only were they like amazing students, but they were doing four or five, six student activities. And like not just doing it, like like they were involved. And I'm always trying, I was always trying to find a corner of their life, right? Like a little bit of time to meet with them, a little bit of time to get them to this event. But you see, that's the thing about busyness, right, is it tells us we're important. So New York Times writer Tim Kreider, in a, in a piece called The Busy Traps, it puts it this way. He says, busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you're so busy. 
If I stay busy, I, can't, I, I, I must be important. This must be meaningful, what I'm doing, if I stay busy, right? Like, I have meaning in what the Bible is reminding us, what Jesus is reminding the Pharisees. They were good at setting the time apart, but their hearts were far from God. What he's reminding them is that you're supposed to turn toward God. Now, the Sabbath is a gift that re-understanding our time as a gift from God is a blessing. And we'll never fully understand the blessing of God until we start to reorganize our sense of time. But get this, it's not just busyness, it's also leisure. My students used to binge work and then binge rest, which is to say that they would work, 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 and then crash. And then spend like a whole day watching Netflix. And I'd ask, do you feel rested? And the inevitable answer was no. And we all do that too. In our own ways, right? I mean, sometimes we think, I'm working for the weekend. And then you cram the weekend full of all the different things that you could possibly do, right? And then you're just as exhausted starting again on Monday as you were before. But time is a gift from God. And the time to slow down and reflect on that is his gift to you. Because how are you going to reflect on your own self-righteousness, for example, if you don't stop and reflect? That's a tautology. It's a, it's a, it doesn't make sense one without the other, right? How are you going to reflect if you don't actually stop and reflect? And that's the thing, right? Reflection takes time. It takes space. It takes slowing down. And that is God's gift to you. If you want to understand the riches of Jesus, you have to slow down. So it's a questionable company. It's a questionable use of time. And it's a questionable celebration. So this is back to verse 18 in chapter 22. The Pharisees notice, they're always noticing, they always got their eyes peeled. The Pharisees notice that Jesus' followers don't fast the same way. Here's the thing, how many fasts do you think are commanded in the Old Testament? I'll give you a hint, one. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, you were supposed to fast. In, all the, in the Mosaic Law, how often are you supposed to fast? One time a year. You could fast for other reasons. There's no, nothing to say you can't or shouldn't. The Pharisees, by the time of Jesus, had started fasting twice a week. I haven't done the math how many extra times that is a year, but it's a lot. Twice a week. And, you know, and apparently John the Baptist's followers, who haven't quite understood the transition to Jesus yet, they're fasting as well because they're waiting, right? They're waiting on the Messiah that John was pointing towards. They're fasting as well. They're waiting. And Jesus' response to them is, why would they fast? This is a time for celebration. 
You fast because you're waiting, because you're anticipating something, because you're reflecting that you're, you're, you're waiting for something to happen. But I'm here. Why would they fast? It uses a few illustrations, right? One is, one is if, when you're waiting for the bridegroom to show up. Again, this is, we do it the other way, actually, <laughs> now, right? We wait for the bride to show up. Occasionally, they're running late. I've done a few weddings like that. Uh, in the ancient world, it was the bride's family that was all gathered there, and they waited for the groom to show up. Either way, you get the point, right? Everybody's waiting. Everybody's a little nervous. Is this all going to happen? Is this all going to work out exactly like it's supposed to? Although never, no wedding ever works out exactly like it's supposed to. Does it? But they're all waiting. They're all nervous. And Jesus is saying, look, you don't stay nervous. You don't stay waiting. When the groom shows up, you do the wedding. And you have the party. And then he, says, and then he uses a couple other illustrations which are a little confusing. He says, Look, if you're going to patch up a piece of clothing that's old, you don't take new fabric and put it on. Because new fabric is still going to shrink, right? It's still, old fabric has shrunk about as much as it's going to shrink. You take, you take new cloth on, it's going to shrink, right? Of course, it's just going to pull the old cloth. So you're going to, it's going to, you're going to make it worse. And then he uses a, a thing about wineskins. And the illustration goes like this. You, know, you, ferment, you would ferment wine in, uh, in wineskins in the ancient world. Uh, so it's a little different than the way you would see it at a winery now. But uh, those bags were made, of course, of leather, and they would get hard over time. So you could ferment, you know, because the fermentation process, they would have to flex as, you know, we can, I can't get into the whole chemistry of it, because I literally can't get into the whole chemistry of it. But over time, in use, they would get hard. So if you poured new wine in there that had to go through the whole fermentation process, they couldn't continue to flex, right? And eventually they would crack, and you'd lose all the wine. And the point seems to be this. What Jesus is saying is that you were anticipating something. You were anticipating something, right? The wedding is the culmination of that anticipation, right? But it introduces a new reality, the point of a wedding isn't to, just to stop there, even though that's where the rom-com ends, right? The point is what lies ahead, what lies beyond. And it is a new reality, right? It's a transition moment. And Jesus is saying, look, I've, I've come, the culmination of everything you've hoped for, and I'm bringing a new reality in. The old, rea- the old ways of doing things are not going to cut it. Because you are hoping for me. And now I'm here. Again, little wonder that they're so perturbed to Jesus. He said he was the Lord of the Sabbath. He said he's the one they've been waiting for. Jesus is telling you in no uncertain terms, I'm God. The passage from last week, he took on the authority to forgive sins. He's God. In other words, this, the, his people cannot stop celebrating because he's there. And even though he predicts the moment of his death, right, there will be a time when he's taken away, 
He's not talking about when he goes to heaven because other places say, uh, in particular John 16, he says, look, it's, it's going to be good that I go away because I'm going to send the Spirit. He's talking about the day he dies. He's talking about when he is in the tomb. And even though Jesus predicts that, right, he's saying something has fundamentally changed. This is a time of celebration. Now, it's also a time for sobriety and recognizing that there, there are threats that still have to be overcome, but it's always a time of celebration. The church doesn't stop rejoicing. This is what Paul says, right, in Philippians. Rejoice. I'll say again, rejoice. You know, and no matter what my circumstances are, I've learned, I've learned how to be content in all of them. He's in prison. He's talking about being content. He's talking about rejoicing. This stands in such contrast to, to American mentalities, right? Because we're either partying or it's the end of the world. My Facebook feed yesterday was jarring. Because on the one hand, lots of people expressing concern about, you know, social distancing and all these things that we need to do. And we do need to do them. Don't mishear me. We do need to do those things. But a few folks, it was nearly apocalyptic. And look, I get it. I'm not saying we shouldn't be concerned. And certainly there are many people who are at risk. We need to be concerned about the elderly. We need to be concerned about folks that have compromised immune systems. We need to be concerned about them. We need to look out for them. We need to protect them, okay? Don't mishear me. But the end of the world has not come. On the other hand, while the official St. Patrick's Day parade was canceled in Park Circle, hundreds of people still showed up and were drinking in the streets. And I saw several posts uh, thumbing their nose at all the advice that they were getting from officials. And I thought, hmm, I, I get it. You don't want to overreact. But drunkenly dancing up on each other is probably not going to be the best way to go here. And you get, but that, that, and I don't mean to, look, I'm not trying to criticize where somebody might fall on one of those, what I'm saying is it typifies our standard attitudes. We tend to be all or nothing. Everything is amazing, and don't be the guy who reigns on our parade. Don't talk about sin and the need for Jesus, because we're all having a good time here. Don't ask me to stop and reflect on what the meaning of my life is. Don't ask me to stop and reflect on what the effects of my decisions are on other people. Or, everything is terrible, and this world is hopeless and dark. And look, I am, I am as capable of switching gears like that on a dime as anybody. But the Bible teaches us a different way. It teaches us to recognize that Jesus has come, that the one that we hope for has arrived, And Jesus has broken the power of sin and death. 
He teaches us not to fear what may come. He doesn't promise that we will not be affected by a pandemic. But he does teach us that even in the midst of that, we are never out of his hands. He doesn't teach us not to take wise measures, but he does say, still look out for others more than yourself. We're still taught to love our neighbors in the midst of that. The gospel is that Jesus has arrived, the one we've been waiting for, and he's decisively dealt with it. And we await the moment when it is completely done away with. That's what's so difficult, perhaps, about the Christian life. On the one hand, is we're supposed to rejoice all the time, and yet we're also supposed to be clear-eyed, soberly assessing where we are in the world. But look, that mystery gets resolved in Jesus. Because we have a king who has done away with sin, who came for sinners. And the decisive defeat of sin in your life has been done. If you're in Christ, sin has been broken. One of those old Puritans, a guy named John Owen, used to say there's, only, there's basically two problems, two pastoral problems. Convincing those who are still under the power of sin that they are in fact under the power of sin. And convincing those that are no longer under the power of sin that they are in fact no longer under the power of sin. And look, if you are in Christ, you are no longer under the power of sin. And the effects of sin, sickness and death, will be undone, even if they're not totally undone in this life, just like your sin. But we look forward to the completion of this, to the finishing of Jesus' work. Look, all these questionable choices Christians make point us to this, point us to, to Jesus and his kingdom, that he has accomplished everything. So we don't have to be self-protectionary. We can be open-handed. We don't have to be self-righteous. We can be honest about who we are. We don't have to worry about keeping the right company that's going to make us look good, that's going to keep up our image, but instead recognize that we are desperately in need. And we don't have to live with busyness or compulsive leisure either, always crushing us, but give our time to God. I don't know what worship is going to look like in coming weeks for us. I don't know what's going to change. I, there's lots of different things that can be. We're thinking about different possibilities of what might lie ahead and trying to plan ahead as best we can for that. But we're not giving up worship of God because that is our celebration. It may look different. Maybe we're even forced to do it online. I don't know. As suboptimal as that might be. But we're not giving up the celebration of what Jesus has done. Because this is the truth about this world, is that Jesus has done away with sin and death. 
And one day he's going to finish them off. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would be with us, that you would teach us to, uh, to see the world through the eyes of your kingdom, to see the world through the eyes of the work of Jesus, to see that the king is really in control. And Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom as we love others. But we pray that that wisdom would come from you, that that would be the wisdom of caring for others first, the wisdom of loving you with all our heart, soul, and strength. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.